We are turning in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. That's page 602 if you would like to follow along in the Bible that's in front of you in the pew rack. Uh, We are continuing a a series we began uh, last week that's going to take us up to Easter where we're considering what are known as Isaiah's four servant songs or the songs of the suffering servant. There are uh, four of them, uh, servant in Hebrew. This will be interesting to some of us, some young people in this room. Servant mean, is Oved in, in Hebrew, and Lord is Yah, so you put together and you have Oved Yah or Obadiah. And so I said last week that if your name is Obadiah, you might be really interested in these songs, but we didn't have an Obadiah last week. Maybe we have one this week. Uh, we're going to be doing then a, uh, about six more sermons looking at Obadiah songs, uh, servants of the, the servant of the Lord. And we're doing that tonight, Obadiah song number one, which is Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. But tonight we're just looking at the first half of this song. So we'll finish up the next, the Lord willing, um, the rest of the song, Lord willing, next week. Let's give careful attention to God's holy word. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Well, on most Friday nights from September of 1952 through April of 1958, uh, many Americans, uh, uh, American families across the country were told to look up in the sky. It was, of course, the voice of the uh, television announcer um, letting them know another episode of the hit show, The Adventures of Superman, was about to air. began every week, look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. Uh, the opening line of this very first song also is a call to attention, a call of observation. Look, uh, behold, God wants his people to see the servant and to see something eminently wonderful about him, something that's not found in anyone else. There's a comparison. It's actually a a look of evaluation. Just like Superman is faster than a speeding bullet and more powerful than a locomotive, there's something about this servant that is greater than anyone else, anything else. There's something we're meant to see here, but we miss it if we actually don't go back a few verses and go into chapter 41. Because Isaiah's overall argument actually begins there. What's happening at this section of the book of Isaiah is that the prophet is denouncing the idolatry that has gripped the whole world, but especially he's denouncing the the idolatry that's gripped the nation of Israel. And he's uh, prophesying to the audience at this point would be people who have been carted off to Babylon. They're in captivity. And why are they there? He's saying it's because you worshiped idols. This is God's judgment upon you. And why did you do it? Idolatry is not worth it. Idols aren't worth it because idols are nothing. And that's the argument that Isaiah makes in chapter 41. Look with me at verse 
um, 21, where Isaiah puts us in a courtroom scene, and it's as though he invites, or God is inviting, uh, who's calling the court, he's inviting uh, those who worship idols to come into court and to bring their favorite gods with them so that they could testify in court. Verse 21, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. So bring your favorite idols and let's, let's, let's figure this out. Let them bring them and tell us what's to happen. So here's their chance to prove if the idols have the, have the goods to be gods. And that is, can they predict the future? Let them tell us what will happen. Uh, verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. But there's, of course, silence in the courtroom. Uh, the idols are unable to predict uh, the future. Actually, it's worse than that. They can't do anything at all. Uh, the rest of verse 23, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. This is the prophet's kind of exasperated plea. Just do something. Do anything. Just, just wow us any way you would like. Okay, you can't predict the future, but surely you can do something. No, they can't do anything. And so, what are we told in verse 24? Behold, there's that word that begins our first song. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. And abomination is, an abomination is he who chooses you. So there's the first behold, and the next really important one comes at the end of the chapter in verse 29, where God pronounces his evaluation of those who worship idols. Behold, they, that is those who worship them, are a delusion. Their works are nothing, and their metal images are empty wind. You are what you worship. That is a biblical principle that you find a number of places in Scripture. Psalm 115 is the clearest. Psalm 115, turn there, please. And let's, let's look at this um, biblical principle that's laid out so clearly. Of course, um, it comes up in the New Testament a couple of times, both positively and negatively. Here we're told in a negative way how you become what you worship. Verse 4, Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but can't smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying in this courtroom scene. First, uh, speaking on behalf of God, first God's evaluation is of the idols. You are nothing and your work is less than nothing. And then it's of the idolaters. He says essentially the same thing. You're a delusion. Uh, the works of your idols are nothing. Their metal images are empty when you've deluded yourself. So God's brought the idols and the idolaters into the celestial courtroom, and here's the verdict. They are nothing. No, actually, they are less than nothing. Uh, and he's saying, look at them. Behold them. It's as though he's saying, can you see anything good in them at all? But then we come to 42 verse 1, and he says, but then look at my servant. Behold the idols. Behold my servant. So there's a comparison to be made here. In the NIV, if you're reading from the NIV, that comparison's lost because it, it uh, translates behold as here. So it has behold in chapter 41, but then you get to 42 and it translates it as here is my servant. But it's the same word. God's saying three times over, look, look, look. For the first two, it's, or for the first one, it's idols, and then it's idolaters, but then it's look at Jesus. Look at my servant. 
In comparison to lifeless idols, here is one who has the very life of God uh, animating him. He says, this is the one I uphold. I have put my spirit upon him. And in the Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. So there's a play on words here because he just said that idols are empty wind, right? Ruach is the Hebrew word, but the servant is filled with God's spirit, ruach. So there's empty wind and there's life-giving wind, the spirit of God. And what a word of consolation that God's announcing to a nation held captive by their enemies. The one that is sending, uh, that God is sending to rescue them has the very power of God. He has the same limitless power because he has the spirit of God. So their idols got them into this mess. They are in Babylon because of their idols, but the servant will get them out of this mess, and he's able to do that because he has the spirit of God upon him. And here's a truth for us to behold. The power of Christ is power enough to save. The power of Christ is power enough to save. It's our sin that makes us miserable. It's our sin that puts us far from God. It's our sin that imprisons us. Jesus, though, is able to rescue. Therefore, what's the upshot then? Therefore, we don't look to anything besides Jesus to rescue us. We don't put our hope in Vain, empty nothings or less than nothings. We do that all the time, right? We, we turn to things we find in this world to get us through this world. No, we need something outside of this world, namely the hope of heaven, which is secured by the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. That's the hope we need. It's, it, we don't numb ourselves with drug, with drink, with, with entertainment. That's not the answer. The answer isn't a better marriage. The answer isn't a better job. Right? The answer isn't any of these things. The answer is found in Christ. That's our hope. That's our help out of sin. So we, we, we are weak. We need strength. We're, we're impotent. We need power. And all of it and more is found in Christ. And did you know Jesus himself made that connection uh, for his people back in Luke 4? If you turn there, this is how he announces the start of his ministry. He says that God has put the Spirit upon him for this very purpose. Here's the purpose. Why does Jesus have the Spirit of God? Why is he upheld? Why is he the chosen one of God Almighty? Why? To save you and me from our sin. He says that. Did you know that in Luke 4? He quotes from a different portion of Isaiah, but it's the same message here. He says, the Spirit, this is verse 18 of Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus doesn't just announce good news. That's how it starts, to proclaim good news to the poor and to proclaim liberty, but he also secures the liberty, to set at liberty those who are captive. Why? How, how does he do it? How can he do it? The Lord has put the Spirit upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is what Jesus can do. You need to hear that tonight. It doesn't matter if you've been a lifelong Christian. You need to renew your faith and your love in this one. Jesus can set you free from sin. Jesus. We sang a, a wonderful hymn earlier in this, this morning's service and has this line, venture on him, venture holy, let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. None but Jesus. So 
there's the, the comparison of the servant. That's the first thing. The servant has been compared to these idols and the other things that we would turn to. In, in the context of Isaiah's first servant song, the work that Jesus comes to do is summed up in the theme of justice. Three times in the opening half of the song, we're told that this is his commission. So we've seen the comparison of the servant. Now, secondly, the commission of the servant. And it's all about justice. He will bring, we're back in Isaiah 42, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice, verse 3. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The Hebrew concept of justice, um, the word there is mishpat. You are all wanting to know that. Now you know it. There's a Hebrew word for you, mishpat. It's, a, it's kind of a complex word to define um, uh, it's uh, manifold meanings, sort of like the, the Hebrew term peace, which you know, shalom. It, it's, it's, um, it has a cosmic dimension almost. It refers to the right orderedness of society from every conceivable angle. Um, the word has to do with God's law. A lot of times mishpat is translated rule or commandment or law, uh, but it has to do with those rules being implemented rightly. That's justice from God's perspective. And why is that God's desire for the world? Why does he want justice in the world? Because justice is who he is. Uh, if you know your catechism, you know, one of those, the great uh, early questions um, uh, is uh, describing who God is or, or what is God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Justice is found at the heart of God, and that's what he wants to see in his people. He wants to see it in the world. He is, it means he's fair. It means he's equitable. God's justice, to quote George Swinnock, is that attribute whereby... He disposes all things according to the rule of equity. It's the truth that says God will give everyone what is their due. God will give everyone what is their due. And this is what the servant has been commissioned to bring about, to bring about a rightly ordered society, uh, to bring about the reality of God's law and how that comes to bear the whole world over. One commentator says, the mission of the servant, therefore, is a gigantic one. And I still think that's an understatement if we have this big view of what justice is. It is nothing less than to put God's plans for his people into full effect and to make the truth about the Lord, Israel's God, known everywhere. And I want you to consider again how meaningful that would be for somebody in um, Israel at this time to hear. Right, somebody who's in captivity, God coming to set things right, uh, God coming to give everyone what they deserve. You, you know that Israelites weren't guaranteed that in any Babylonian court. They were not guaranteed uh, what their due was. Uh, the reality of sin, and this is, this is sad, but it's true. The reality of sin means that in places where justice is meant to reign, oftentimes injustice is there instead. And so you can think about uh, how that's played out throughout history. Justice was hard to find for a black man or a black woman in Jim Crow South. Uh, justice was, was um, non-existent, essentially, in what was called the, the People's Court. That was the Nazi court that they set up to, to, um, uh, to uh, prosecute political offenses, what they believe were political offenses against Hitler. I mean, if you were brought to that court, you were, you were done. Uh, can, so the question that, that Isaiah is 
audience is asking, and it's one that we certainly have asked as well, is can there be justice in this world? Can that actually happen? Can God's people find justice in the world? And the servant will make it so. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice. Maybe you can imagine the people of Israel waiting for the coming of this servant with the same sort of anticipation that the Narnians were waiting for the return of Aslan during the long winter of the, the, uh, uh, the wicked queen. What's the uh, prophecy poem that, that they're all clinging to? It says, all will be made right when Aslan comes into sight. And it says, at the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. That's, that's something like what the Israelites are longing for in this servant. All will be made right, justice, finally, when he comes. But there's something fascinating about how the servant will execute this commission. And it's actually through acts of compassion. And that's the final consideration this evening. We've seen the comparison of the servant uh, compared against the idols of the world, the commission of the servant to bring about justice. And now how does he do it? It's the compassion of the servant. When you think of justice, I'm guessing gentleness isn't often a corollary that comes to mind. When you think of a judge, meek and mild aren't usually terms that we would use to describe uh, a judge. And yet the way that God proposes to deal with the wrongs of this world, the way that his servant will establish justice is completely backward to our natural instincts. So look at verse 2 of our song. It says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What is Isaiah saying here? He's saying that the servant is going to usher in a new world order with actually little to no fanfare. What political leader would would dare do that today, right? They want everybody to know it's their policies that are being enacted. They want it to be on the side of buses and on billboards. This is perhaps further proof we talked about last, last week. We talked about the identity of the servant and the different ideas people have proposed. Who is the servant? And we're saying it's Jesus. I think it's abundantly clear, and Jesus says so himself. But scholars have said, oh, no, it's Isaiah himself, or it's, it's the nation of Israel, or it's Cyrus, right, the one appointed by God to end the exile. Here's another proof that this is not Cyrus, uh, because he's saying that he's going to do this, and he's going to go undetected. But, but Cyrus was all about making a name for himself. Uh, he's interested in, pro, um, in promoting his own political agenda. God used him to bring Israel out of exile, but that kind of bravado will, uh, will be antithetical to how God will bring his people out of their sin. Right? We're talking about two different kinds of rescue. One's a political rescue. Cyrus is used in that way. Now this is a, a rescue from the, the bondage of sin, and it's not going to be the way you expect. He's not going to cry aloud in the street. He's going he's to be gentle. Jesus is known by his gentleness. He doesn't condemn those who are oppressed by sin and suffering, he doesn't condemn them, he heals them. And what's interesting is that uh, this is how the gospel writer Matthew evaluates the ministry of Christ. He quotes these very verses in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. says, many followed him and he healed them all and he ordered them not to make himself known, 
This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. He heals them. He's gentle with them. And then he says, don't go bragging about, it, about me. Don't, don't go telling people. The words of Old Testament scholar John Oswald are worth sharing at this point. He says, whereas all the other royal figures who have claimed to set up justice on the earth have uh, done so through the gleeful use of their power to smash and rebuild, this one will be radically different. He is so far from smashing the mighty that he will not even break off the reed that is bent over and cracked. Rather, he will support it and straighten it. He will not even puff out the most dimly guttering lamp wick. Rather, he will trim it and set it more deeply within the oil. And this is good news. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. This is good news because if you haven't realized it yet, you and I are the bruised reed. We are the ones who are bruised by sin, our sin and the sins of others against us. Uh, we are the lights that are about to go out because of the suffering and sorrow that we've gone through in this life. But Jesus come and, comes and he deals gently with us. Now, how can that be? Especially if we're thinking of this in the context of God enacting justice here. We've said that God's a God of justice, and we've said justice means that everyone will receive their due well, what do you and I deserve for our sin? The wages of sin is death. So what do we make of this? As Charles Spurgeon once powerfully said, uh, God must punish sin or cease to be God. So, so what do we do? How can he be gentle with us and still be just? But the answer is found, of course, if, as you look to the servant, as you keep following his life and you follow it to the very end, to the cross, here is how Jesus doesn't break a bruised reed. He's broken instead. This is how it can be that he doesn't snuff out that faintly burning candle. It's because at Calvary, his life was quenched in our place. Justice still comes. Sin is punished. But for you, brother or sister, if you're looking to Christ... Your sin is punished on the cross of Christ. Every one of your sins is dealt with. Justice comes, but it comes on a substitute. You're bruised. You, you are, you're faintly burning. Jesus doesn't want to break you. He would rather be broken than you be broken. Uh, Jesus doesn't want to quench your light. He would rather let his life be extinguished than you lose yours. And this is God's plan all along. What a kindness of the Lord to his wayward people. And this is how he brings forth justice. First, it happens in our hearts, of course, right? He, God, uh, Jesus makes us right with God. Uh, he, he puts a new desire, a never-before-known ability to actually keep God's laws, his rules, his commandments, his mishpat. Now we love God's law. Now we want to obey God's law. Now we have the ability to keep God's law we never would have guessed it. We never would have guessed this is how justice comes about. God's answer, this is Oswald again, God's answer to the oppressors of the world is not more oppression, nor is his answer to arrogance more arrogance. Rather, in quietness and humility and simplicity, he will take all of that evil into himself and return only grace. Wow. Wow. 
This is how he faithfully brings forth justice, first in our hearts. But second, of course, in the world, when he comes again, then the justice of God will be on full display. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, Matthew 25, right? And he will bring all gathered before him and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. That's when he comes again. All will be made right when Aslan comes into sight. So right now we still experience injustice. There's still that, that mishpat has not been fully realized. It's begun here. It's begun now. It's begun in the Christian community, the church, one day the whole world over. And this is what the servant comes to do. This is his commission, and it's one that is executed in total compassion. What a servant to behold. What a servant to behold. Richard Sibbs writes in his classic book, The Bruised Reed, that Christ was God's servant in the greatest piece of service that there ever was, a chosen and a choice servant who did and suffered all by commission from the Father. And in this we may see the sweet love of God to us, and that he counts the world of our salvation, or the work of our salvation by Christ, his greatest service, and in that he will put his only beloved son to that service. So he might well prefix it with behold to raise up our thoughts to the highest pitch of attention and admiration because this is what he's doing. He's saving us. So the behold is, is so fitting, and I call you to it as well tonight. Behold, look, it's more than a call to attention. It's a call to faith. It's a call to believe. This is God's way of saving. Uh, it, it, it's so counterintuitive to us. God needs to keep telling us throughout the scriptures. This is how it will be through someone, uh, through the one, Jesus Christ, through his act of humble service and sacrifice. He has to tell us over and over again. So Pilate presents him, crowned with horns, and what does he say? Behold the man. And before him, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now Isaiah saying, behold God's servant. Here's the call to believe that this servant offers something that you can't live without, something that you can't afford to miss, namely salvation. So, friends, don't leave tonight without beholding and believing. Our Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it instructs us in our faith and our life and the way that it paints a beautiful picture, a picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to look to him and to love him, for he is indeed lovely. He is beautiful. Uh, he is the fairest of 10,000. We thank you for the compassion and the gentleness of Jesus that comes to us in the gospel and that you deal with us so kindly in our sin, that you do not bruise us nor break us, but you build us up in the faith. And you do so even in these moments we have together in worship and uh, in a moment around the, the table. So we thank you for that, and we ask that you would bless uh, the words that were preached. Would you send your Holy Spirit to be the after-preacher to uh, put into our hearts in a permanent way your truth? We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.